0: It's the Wonky Show. Uh, QAA has gone woke. We'll work out how and why. Robert Halfon has spoken to the sector. We'll see what he had to say. Plus, there's a plan beyond research and some new equality data
1: out. It's all coming up. It takes a lot of um, courage. It takes a lot of emotional uh, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, resilience to talk about this and debate about it. Now, you you asked me a question that whether critical theory has a space, uh, critical race theory has a space within subject benchmark.
0: Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and I'm here to discuss this week's developments, as usual, three fantastic guests. Uh, on Stag Hill in Guildford, Osama Khan is the pro-vice-chancellor academic at the University of Surrey. Osama,
1: your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Uh, me and my wife went out for on a Monday after a long time on a working day and watched Wakanda, the Black Panther. I wish there is really a country like that.
0: And uh, just outside Chepstow, Jim? Jenny Shaw is Higher Education External Engagement Director at Unite Students. Jenny, your highlight of the week, please.
2: Oh, well, it's podcast related. So obviously being on this podcast, but also uh, uh, the work I've been doing on our own Accommodation Matters podcast, which has been really good. We've got a really nice episode in Pipeline.
0: And in sunny Liverpool, James Coe is Associate Editor at Wonky. James, your highlight of the week,
3: please. Hiya, Jim. My highlight to the week is that my wife started maternity leave this week, which means it's only four and a half weeks until baby Olive turns up. How exciting. Uh, any sense of whether it'll be early or late or you reckon on time well I was born four weeks early but maybe that's just because I was always in a rush to get on with stuff so if it follows that then any day now uh, yes we start this week then with the Quality Assurance Agency which it says here is a far left organisation that has gone woke James what's going on here well Jim I know the QAA I was a QA reviewer back in the day when I was a student officer I, I think the idea that's gone woke is just nonsense isn't it so let me, let me put this in a bit of context at the weekend the spectator wrote a piece saying there's a sinister attempt to decolonise mathematics in the form of a QA consultation into subject benchmark statements. These benchmark statements were done by King's College London academic and criticises the new guidance which suggests students learn about problematic issues in the development of mathematics. So basically, to put this in a bit of context, subject benchmark statements aren't written by the QA, they are collations by students, by academics, by experts to try and reflect how subjects are changing over time. These haven't been updated since 2020, So with everything that's gone in the last couple of years, it's no wonder they are changing and changing with the times. As you may have seen on Wonky this week, DK has pointed out that the guidance is not the same as rules, and indeed, the Daily Mail has gone pretty much, well, a lot further than The Spectator, and has done a piece which says universities are ordered to go woke. Of course, we should be absolutely clear that QAA are not the regulator of universities. That is the Office of Students. Office of Students piled in on this, and Susan Lapworth was quoted in the media saying, all decisions about the quality of higher education courses are made by the OFS and not the QAA. The OFS does not expect universities to follow the QAA's benchmark statements, and we do not endorse or support the content of those documents. Although, hold on,
0: James, just before we carry on, we do have to be careful here. The QAA does retain
3: a significant regulatory role outside of England. (laughs) Absolutely. So for non-English audiences, forgive everything I just said, but in the context which the Daily Mail and Spectator were making those comments... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, in that situation, they do not. Any, anything else? You, to, to, no, to that's interrupt? where we are, Jim. So, okay, I mean, right. you know, the, the summary of the whole thing is that there's been a misunderstanding of the QA's role in England. Mm-hmm. This has been jumped on by the Spectator and the Daily Mail. And now OFS have done this response to return. actually, we don't agree with the QA after all, which has made the whole regulatory space a bit awkward for everybody. But Osama, this is interesting, isn't it? Because, you
0: know, okay, maybe it's the case that the QAA can't, you know, tell universities what to do but there has to you know there, there is a purpose to subject benchmark statements in in terms of kind of you know expressing a collective and expected standard in a subject so to that end it's it, it's not as if we can just wander around going these are completely irrelevant and only optional and, and and if they're saying something that you know some people disagree with or some people think shouldn't be part of a subject
1: isn't that legit Um uh- to be honest, I I, I don't know why OFS have taken such a strong strong stance. They should really understand how we have operated in the university sector for decades and the subject benchmark statements are quite a solid cornerstone for how we relate whether mathematics is taught in a rounded way, let's say at University of Surrey. In fact, our validation panel look into the subject benchmark on a regular basis. They compare and contrast broadly speaking, are we teaching a modern maths or sociology or business in our universities? So yes, uh, in England, we understand they don't have regulatory authority, but the uptake or the respect towards the subject benchmark among the academic community in my humble opinion is extremely high we do pay attention to what they have to say and we basically map our validation documentation and some of our uh, uh, content review against it so we don't follow it by ditto because it's not a extensive list of what you need to teach it's it's a benchmark and everybody understand what's a benchmark it's a rounded view of how a particular subject should be taught at the british
0: university Sure, but I mean, but, but, but that's interesting then, isn't it? Because if it's the kind of settled collective view that other people will read for inspiration on how to teach, you know, in that original case in the spectator piece computing, a lot of people are arguing that critical race theory has no place in universities and other people are arguing critical race theory has no place in computing are they is that a legitimate argument to hold or should they back off Uh,
1: uh, dare I say in my humble opinion this is a legitimate argument to have to be honest uh, uh, what's my view about some of those things coming into the uh, subject benchmark? Um, I, I'm I myself is conflicted. I I, I would I would admit that. Uh, I, I think whether you teach critical race theory while you're teaching quantum dynamics. Um, first of all, it's difficult. How do I actually tell my early career academic how to do it? You know, they're probably PhD in mathematics or physics or sociology. In fact, sociology might be a bit pre exposed to deal with situations like that, but other subjects might struggle. So what are we trying to fix here? That's the question I would ask. So the sector has an awarding gap. The awarding gap is not just in award, but in progression and continuation as well. We have a moral responsibility that irrespective of your background and diversity of your background, you should achieve equally. And in that moral responsibility, how does the critical race theory play a role in my opinion, hasn't been understood clearly. And that's why we're divided. Some academics talks about it with passion, some doesn't. Should it come into the subject benchmark? I have a little bit of question mark about it.
0: Now, uh, Jenny, um, obviously, the, the, the comments from the Office for Students, uh, specifically from Chief Exec, Susan Lapworth, were, 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 you know, were fairly crunchy here. So let me just read from there um all decisions about the quality of higher education courses are made by the OFS and not the QAA the OFS does not expect universities to follow the statements we do not endorse or support the content of those documents now you know, there's a way of reading that that suggests that what OFS is saying is, look, you know, that, that it's not actual regulation, nothing to do with us. But there's another way of reading that, which is kind of, we don't support the idea of doing, you know, EDI and equality and diversity work in subject benchmark statements. And and you know, what, what, that that doesn't doesn't that end up having quite a kind of weird chilling effect on EDI, EDI initiatives in teaching and learning.
2: Yeah, I'm going to not get drawn into this one, I think, although I did raise my eyes a little bit and wonder, you know, what had been said and whether it had been taken out of context. But I, to be honest from a, a somewhat outside perspective now i find it a little bit baffling because university isn't like school you go there to get new perspectives you go to you go there to get new thinking new new ideas new ways of looking at your subject and that's i think that's part of the excitement of university for for most students and and as well i think uh young people do tend to care quite deeply about um you know the the background and beliefs of of people um who who say things or people who've come up with theories or whatever uh, people's individual positions are important to young people. So um, in a way, I find that a little bit baffling. I I think as well, you know, most large companies, uh, most public sector bodies and charitable organisations are very committed to EDI. So if you're looking at university as, you know, training the future workforce, making people ready for work, well, actually, in that sense, uh, universities uh, preparing students for the modern workforce because you need to take on different perspectives. You need to understand um, that some of the factors that have shaped our world. What I also thought was really interesting, actually, is in in DK's article he made a link with ethics, um, which obviously is vital in academic research as it is in any organisation. But from that perspective, I think learning from the mistakes of the past seems like a really important part of anyone's education. So uh, I find the whole thing somewhat baffling. Um, I wonder if it's a little bit of old wars with new faces to be honest because in the press articles I could see an academic pushing back against what was perceived as managerialism and I saw an older generation thinking that the new generations should think the way that they do so in that sense I wonder if it's just old things with new faces.
0: James one of the things that I think is really interesting and we do have to think about this carefully I think is that on one level or another, what the QAA benchmark statement is doing is saying, this is the settled view on how you should teach a particular subject. And there are some people that would say universities have a kind of right to determine that and require their academics to teach in a particular way in accordance with a particular kind of teaching and learning or pedagogical theory. And there are other people that would say, no, academics always should have the right to contest that theory on the basis of freedom of speech. Now, clearly, we wouldn't support the idea of someone being able to kind of wander in to a lecture theatre and just start screaming and swearing on the basis that they disagree with the theory that everyone should be quiet. But where do you draw that line around what universities can require of academics and what universities have to accept is academic freedom
3: on on things like this. So I I think the response to that, Jim, is that it's incredibly difficult. So what you need is a system where people can bring together experts, put out views of the world, and then allow reflection on it at a program and provider level. So something like the QA subject benchmark statements <laughs> allows people to do work like that. And the, the oh, point but, I but, made, but 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 hold on, James. On, but, but,
0: but, on. But, but look, I, I absolutely understand that argument. So the argument that you're making is, look, if you bring people together, they can talk through their differences, they can work out where the lines are and so on. But we are not in a world that allows that kind of cl- relatively behind closed doors subtlety and complexity because – when people say things out loud they get held up stuck in the press for clickbait so that isn't going away we can't shut down mail online so so what do we do
3: no. Well, I mean, Jim, it's, uh, it's an enormous question, isn't it? And I think there's two responses to that. Either you have to say, actually, there can't be a place for this sort of quiet, reflective discourse. You know, the subject benchmarks have taken two years to come up with some conclusions. <laughs> yeah.
0: Or what you say and is actually... it probably took actually- t- the mail online about 10 minutes to copy it out It about 10 the- minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then,
3: what you then say is, okay, well, we'll just have a massive public rows about every single debate in academia ever until somebody basically kills either side and wins out the 1% in the middle who haven't changed their minds. The thing that I would really point out on this QA debate is there's, there's two things which I think are really really important so the work which the QA is doing on subject benchmark statements sits within the QA's role as the sector expert body on quality and standards which is funded through membership so this is a membership function reflecting a membership discussion with them and the second is that a lot of the comments taken by the Daily Mail and others have come out the advisory board who are looking at issues of equality, diversity, inclusion, sustainability, the needs of disabled students and enterprise education. I think the idea that you could have any education system in 2022 that doesn't reflect those areas that no matter how contentious they might be would plainly be absurd
0: in any form yeah. I mean yeah I mean that is fascinating Osama isn't it because you know I've looked at four or five of the subject benchmark statements this week they're not all about race they're about inclusive practice in all sorts of ways but it's always race that gets picked on isn't it occasionally the you know in uh, in parentheses the trans issue but you know nine times out of ten it's race and there's an, there's an issue with discussion about race isn't there in, in kind of wider culture I
1: could not agree more. I I, I felt like Jenny really put it beautifully there that what is the role of this EDI and the debate in the subject benchmark, uh, and and so did James just now. Um, I, I think race is an uh, emotional, emotive topic. Um, you know, myself being an immigrant minority person trying to lead on race equity at Surrey, it takes a lot of um, courage, it takes a lot of emotional uh, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, resilience to talk about this and debate about it. Now, you, you asked me a question that whether critical theory has a space. Uh, critical race theory has a space within subject benchmark. Now, whether EDI is all about critical race theory, I have a question mark. That's why I put my question mark when I answered you first time. EDI is definitely closer to my heart and everybody's heart. I can hear this panel talking about equality, diversity, inclusion. An aspect of that and a most controversial aspect of that is race. Whether race could be understood only through critical race theory lens, is that's where we need to debate. We need to debate about it. But I think uh, one aspect of bringing all race in academia, in a, in a with a strong sense of belonging, is to give them that sense of belonging. Whether critical race theory gives that sense of belonging is a question I really would like to ask the question as a PVC academic, and then start to work with it while decolonizing the curriculum or while doing EDI and inclusion, inclusive education. There are a lot more things we need to do about how we teach. And how we assess before we start having a debate about critical race theory in, in every subject. That's the point I'm trying to make. So EDI is very important, but is EDI equals to critical race theory? Is a question we should debate.
0: Do you know what though, Jenny? Right. So so um, there's a WhatsApp group for wonky SUs, right, for student officers, and you know they've they've had a bit of a debate about this this week in relation to computing, and that I've been kind of half watching throughout the course of the week. And the kind of opening contribution was, how do you decolonize decolonize computing? and then actually the the, the the exchanges were really interesting because i think everyone learned from each other's perspectives and kind of oh yeah well actually you know if you think about x and you think about whose um you know uh, identities are privileged and you know all and and and, and the political economy of it, it was just really fascinating and it struck me that the danger with you know th- this kind of coverage and the kind of interventions you get from politicians is you don't get that dialogue that i've kind of witnessed on whatsapp do you know what i mean it's the dialogue that matters isn't it?
2: It is. It is. It's... It's having an open mind. It's in, it's inquiry. It's learning and listening to other people and learning from other people. And I think that that's absolutely what gets lost when it comes out as a soundbite, whether that's from a politician or a journalist. It, it is. There's something about this beyond the labels which really cuts to the heart of a higher level education, which is understanding the world around you from different perspectives and from different points.
0: And so, James, I mean, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll move off this in a second, but James, here's, here's the ultimate question right there are people who would argue that what the free speech bill should do is maintain stuff like this in subject benchmark statements because it generates that kind of debate over time, uh, both in the community and within universities. There are other people who are expecting the free speech bill to have some magical power to ban things like that appearing in the subject benchmark statements. And it strikes me that one of those sides
3: is going to win in the end, and that's probably a problem. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be no sort of happy middle on this. And I suppose this strikes at how the problem as to whether you can legislate for free speech in the first <laughs> question. But, you know, I, if, if I think about these two We words, are knocked right?
0: back at second reading,
3: as they would say. no we're not and look if I think about these two, two worlds right there is a world where you try and legislate for every bit of freedom of speech you do or don't like, and try and make sure that's enshrined beyond the protections which already exist. Or, you have a system which is careful reflection of experts and debate, and then it comes out for experts in their own fields, then reflect and implement in their own contexts. I would much rather have the latter, providing the protections which already exist, and legislation like the Cortex, Act, et etc. are properly adhered to. So, it shouldn't be about winning. It should be about respect. It should be about understanding. So, I suppose in that traditional wonky, you know, view of the world, it's about more light, less heat. <laughs> (laughs) Well, fingers
0: crossed. So uh, great stuff. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
2: Hi, I'm Tanya Strutzer. I'm the Head of Student Engagement and Success at the University of Greenwich.
4: And my name's Colin
0: Mackey. I'm the Head of Advocacy and Policy at Greenwich Students' Union. This week, we're writing about the retention calling project run by Greenwich Students' Union and the University of Greenwich. The project was set up during the pandemic as a shift to online teaching meant students were missing their usual touch points. Three years on, and the check-ins have been mainstreamed, calling all students across three terms with the aim of providing timely support to aid retention. We're focused on meeting students where they're at, providing targeted support for new students, PGOs, and students who haven't been in attendance.
2: Our model of support also allows us to preempt student needs. In Term 2 last year, we prioritised calling our Ukrainian, Russian, and Belarusian students to help inform the support we put in place for those students. Last year we made almost 54,000 calls to over 21,000 students. As well as linking students with the right support, the feedback we receive is a great temperature check throughout the year. 97% of the students who complete the check-in with us continue on their programme. In our article we explore what makes an effective partnership between the Students' Union and the University and provide reflections on lessons learned from this project.
0: Now, next up this week, new minister Robert Halfon has had some things to say, Asama.
1: Yes, so we got now a brand new minister for skills, apprenticeships and higher education, Robert Halfon. I wish him all the best so that he lasts long enough to make an impact on higher education. Uh, So what he has said, you know, the famous chair of the last education committee who is a vehement opponent of uh, decolonizing, sometimes accused the university sector that it is plagued with Taliban-style banning people who are banning textbook. Although there is a clear evidence from Office for Student that only about a couple of universities against whom there has been a complaint about uh, kind of banning text or banning uh, um, uh, kind of reading list and or, or trying to... Uh, uh, clean out reading list. So it's interesting that this is a debate, this is a topic that we are having discussion about because I cannot see anything like that happening at the University of Surrey. So what is he talking about? He is basically talking about three major things why the university should exist. Very clearly very, uh, in a crystal way, he talked about meeting the skills need of the economy, providing quality qualification that lead to well-paid jobs, and advancing social justice. I'm glad that he talked about advancing social justice, because I truly don't believe that higher education is only about getting a job. It's about creating a citizen, a rounded individual who contributes within their community, society, and the country, and the globe. Um, but interestingly, he talked about advanced social, advancing social justice, but we also know the minister is not a fan of decolonizing nonsense. He talked about decolonizing nonsense. So there is a debate to have, and in a way, Jim, I must say that the debate we were literally having a few minutes ago is continuing, and the narrative goes, and that debate will remain. As a matter of fact, as a chair of the Education Committee, he is a big fan of apprenticeship, and he talked about rocket-boosting degree apprenticeship. He specifically put this uh, to the sector by saying, if your university does not offer a single degree apprenticeship, you should ask yourself why? And as a PVC academic at Surrey, I am asking the question why. We don't offer a degree apprenticeship. We did try. We may try again. And last thing that I would like to talk about this minister is um, she did he did insist, Michelle donnellin that Oxford University should be forced to offer degree apprenticeship. I would love to see that day when that happens. But on a different note, I must say, Cambridge did start a foundation year, which I really applaud.
0: I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? That, you know, one minute, you know, you can't have a kind of consensus statement on how to teach computing, but the next minute you're going to force a university to teach a degree But Anyway, look, James, there's a way of reading this speech that basically says... It's like a Donnellan speech, only put through one of those rewriting AI, you know, pieces of software with a couple of lines on rocket boosting apprenticeships that he's been using for decades. Is that fair or was there anything else in here that we should
3: note? So, if I talk a bit about Health and at Times Higher Education conference yesterday, he set out three things that he says he believes a 21st century university should have. And he says it's about meeting the skills, needs of the economy. I think everyone would agree with that. Providing quality qualifications that lead to well-paid jobs. I think the definition of what a quality qualification is, is where the debate is and what the lead, you know what a well-paid job is. And then he has a really interesting one, which is about advancing social justice by helping disadvantaged applicants onto the first rung of the ladder of opportunity. Now, when put like that, it's obviously a bit sort of politician's <laughs> And, not necessarily know. the second rung. No, uh, not necessarily second rung, and you know, let's kick that behind, or whatever. But I think it is encouraging that to highlight that as your three priorities, and he has some interesting things to point to. So, for example, the degree level apprenticeships debate, we should remember they have gone up by 10% since twenty one twenty is growth there. My argument would be who's taking them, and is it students who actually um, have the greatest level of access needs to education in the first place? He also made the point that higher education is, in fact, a good return on investment within the uh, within the economy. So what I look at this speech is, it's a game of two halves. So it's got all the usual stuff, which is, you know, Michelle Donlan's view of the world, it's got some social access, it's got some sort of progress, which I think is brilliant. But nonetheless there is always this background feeling of, okay, where's the stick to beat universities with? And I think we will see a bit of that dynamic play out throughout his tenure, if anything, you know, buys time the education committees to go by. Jenny, uh, one of the, I mean, uh,
0: arguably the kind of large elephants in the room was the cost of living crisis. And you know he did talk about student support so he appeared to on the hoof extend the remit of uh, nottingham trent vice chancellor edward peck's role as student support champion into careers advice which was extraordinary i thought we all thought that uh, ed peck was just looking at mental health but no apparently it's also careers advice too but but he didn't talk at all about cost of living either for uh, you know, academic and professional services staff or crucially for students is that is that realistic you know there's a university minister is isn't talking about anything to do with student support in their big major speech in the middle of a cost of living crisis or is it or am, I, am i am i overcooking this
2: yeah i mean i can't really talk about what he didn't say to be honest but uh, um i i suspect we we are in quite uncharted territory here we don't really know how it's going to play out and uh, um I, I think we'll we'll see how things settle down a little bit more um towards the end of this month hopefully but um it's it's very difficult for me to talk about what he didn't say um what, but you what but, but you
0: have you have you have published cost of living research with in we terms have. of students haven't you
2: yes and i and i think it, it says what what we all know that um you know students and their parents are concerned about the cost of living we don't we don't know what how that will pan out we don't know how that will uh, change over the next two years and we don't know I think crucially yet what impact that's going to have on students so um, Edward Peck I was at the Joint Codes Conference last week uh, and Edward Peck was talking about setting out his um, sort of key principles around student support so I think it'll be interesting to, to wait for that and to see what content there is is around uh, cost of living support um, but yes I, I as I say I, I can't really comment on what he hasn't said in his speech so um well I I thought it was encouraging that the first thing he said that university was for was to grow your intellect um I thought that was was quite an encouraging sign um I did feel, and this is kind of going back to my, my sort of previous career prior to being in the student accommodation, um, it, he was having a go uh, at uh, setting up higher technical qualifications, which pretty much everyone has tried to do really over the last uh, 30 years. So it's not a new thing. Um, and what I would say there is it's really important to learn from those previous attempts. So we had foundation degrees. We still have foundation degrees, um, but they've gone a little bit quiet. But I think they were the the pre a previous previous attempt to do this, Um, what they did do quite well, I think, was combine the strengths of the FE and the HE sector quite well but they were defined in relation to a degree, so I suspect they always felt like a lesser option. Um, and of course, we've we've lost quite a lot of the infrastructure that sits around them. I think the thing that always comes up, though, when looking at these uh, technical qualifications and particularly things like apprenticeships is, uh, well, the, the, there is a kind of a ceiling that you can go to because we can't get uh, employers, we can't get businesses uh, involved to the level that we would like to, and that always seems to be the difficult part. So maybe that's the, the part to look at and and look at in a perhaps a more creative way um, if if we're really going to. If we want to have this uh, technical, skilled, sort of intermediate skills economy uh, like Germany, which I think maybe for us post-Brexit might be quite attractive, uh, then we need to think about how we're going to do that. And I think it's not just about uh, encouraging universities. I think it's about seeing it in the round.
0: James, do you get a sense that w- we're actually going to get any major kind of policy action between now and whenever there's an election? or Or are we in a sort of, um, junior minister holding position here where occasionally kind of how fun pops up and this must be true in lots of other departments too the kind of junior minister pops up sa- says broadly the same things n- nothing too controversial nothing big in terms of expenditure because there isn't any money and then there will be an election at some point is, is are we kind of stuck there for a while now or is, is is do you think there's meaning actual meaning or change coming
3: i don't jim i, I don't I don't know, but my honest answer is I hope not, because some of the challenges are just enormous that seem impossible to ignore. So I think you could put these into three boxes. So there's things which we promised are coming ahead and there's legislation on. So for example, uh, lifelong learning entitlements, you think might reappear at some point. There are issues which are so enormous and facing the sector need resolving within the next couple of years. I would put cost of living of students, the unit of resource in that box. And then there's things which Health and has already signalled are important to, that could be ripe for some work. And I'll just pause on degree apprenticeships on that point. I think there is a view of the world that degree apprenticeships are synonymous with improving social mobility and uh, impacting some leveling up agenda. The thing that I was come back to is that work by the Sutton Trust in 2020 shows that there is the same amount of money spent on senior leaders as the apprentice levy, as, uh, sorry, as them. Um, let again. there's the same amount of degree apprentices there's the same amount of the levy spent on senior leaders as all under 25s put together and only a fifth of degree apprentices were under the age of 20 so the idea that actually degree apprentices are the thing degree apprenticeships are the thing that's going to fix social mobility in and of itself if Robert Halfon set off and said look we want more degree apprenticeships we want more access by more people and this is going to be one of the major ways in which we improve social mobility I think sector would get behind that but that's just not the
0: case at the moment now let's look back at how things were and how things came. Came to be with academic registrar and sector Mike Ratcliffe. Here's the hidden history of HE.
4: So, if you look at the Robbins report, which stands as a as a marker of where we were in in early 1960s um, higher education in the UK, you'll find that there's a whole chapter dedicated for the colleges of education and training of teachers. Because when Robbins wrote, there were 146 colleges in the UK delivering teacher training and they had 49,000 students which is about a quarter of the whole of the higher education sector and at that point they were still dealing with the repercussions of some very serious manpower planning that the government had done and and planning for a huge expansion. There was talk about the number of trainee teachers needing to go up to 114,000 across the sector so Robin spends a lot of time thinking about what is going to happen to all these colleges of higher education. There's a concern that many of them are too small, haven't got a critical mass in terms of what they're trying to do. So there's a discussion about whether they should become liberal arts colleges, whether they could develop in that direction. Robin suggests that they uh, move towards having a Bachelor of Education degree rather than the cert ed, uh, that they have been offering. Uh, and the government swings into action with all its normal planning and um, foresight that, that puts everything together if you look at the buildings built by these uh, county architects at this point they look just like the new universities that are being put up so you can put um, the walsall campus of the west midlands college of education next to lancaster or warwick and from the you know the shiny black and white photos you wouldn't be able to tell them apart they are doing the same kind of thing they're developing a residential experience for students but focused on teacher education but by the beginning of the 1970s, all of this has changed. The James Committee looks at the future of higher education in, in teacher training, uh, and they suggest that what would be good is to have a, a DIPHE route, because you probably only need two years of, of a general education before you go off and do teacher edu- uh, teacher training. Uh, and that would also be a good way for the colleges to diversify. It's a way that they don't have to have the research expertise that you'd expect in the final year. So the DIPHE is born as an idea, the idea that you could have a, a short stage um, higher education qualification that you could then top up with a professional training. So it's the beginning of our first um, short cycle uh, award, uh, but also notes that the planning forecasts for teacher training have changed quite radically because people have counted how many children are coming forward and that the teachers aren't retiring and therefore there's a major shift in terms of the numbers that they think about. So they shift this idea that they will have about a hundred thousand down to about 60,000. So this is a tremendous change in terms of uh, manpower planning, Probably an argument for saying the government should never do manpower planning uh, again. So uh, the white paper that Mrs. Thatcher uh, puts out, uh, a framework for expansion in terms of uh, education, uh, has to deal with the fact that there are now 160 of these colleges, uh, but they are comparatively small and inconveniently located for development into larger general purpose institutions. Um, Some of them will be needed just for teacher education, some might develop in other directions. Uh, and cheerfully, uh, this being a white paper, some must face the possibility that in due course they will have to be converted to new purposes. Some may need to close. And then sets about this extraordinary planned exercise, uh, of which you can find loads of books complaining about because it's just done awfully, of deciding which of the colleges are going to close. And they work their way methodically through it. They have to deal with the churches who quite important in this area so there's discussions with the catholic board of education and the church of england who have a sense of which ones they want to keep going there's um, some thinking about where things are located because when they've they were trying to fill in every available area and make sure that had a teacher training college. Suddenly that doesn't make sense. Uh, so there's some, some interesting, uh, shifts in terms of that. There's local considerations, which college is going to survive, which is going to merge with the Polytechnic. So here locally, uh, there are three, um, colleges of, high, of education, Clifton college, Mary ward and Newark. They all are in the running to join, um, uh, trent polly but only clifton college does the others close outright and in mary ward's case uh, this is a a catholic college that's been put out in the in the countryside um, near nottingham Um, it had only opened in 1969 And within three years, they were discussing having to close it. Now, they sold the site to the British Geological Survey. So that's fine. Its site got used. But these kind of conversations go on. And brand new colleges are just closed down again. So it's just one of those monumental uh, failures. Now, some of the colleges that survive, uh, either through merger or just on their own, are the foundations of a a wave of universities that we get um in this century so chester's and winchester's and chichester's the kind of cathedral town um colleges of education but some of the places that lose their um, colleges of education have never really got it back in terms of the development so places like grantham or salisbury they lose their college of education they never get it back again they they're they're left with a, a college of technology, an F.E. college. They, do, they don't get a higher education presence back again in the same kind of a way. And it's a bit of a lottery how all that works out. But the prospect that the government grows a sector and then five years later contracts it desperately is just one of those sad little stories of, of how we've ended up in our current situation.
0: Now, Jenny, next up, there's a plan B on research.
2: There is a plan B, and, and I think it probably needs a bit of a rebrand because plan B doesn't sound terribly positive, so... Uh, um So just to give a bit of perspective, and I should say, actually, the last time I was involved in European research and innovation programmes, it was the fifth framework programme and it was the last century. So uh, uh, do bear that in mind. But Horizon, of course, is the European Union framework for funding collaborative research and innovation within agreed priorities and associated programmes as well, which provide uh, wider support to that collaboration, so early talent development, mobility and so on. Uh, And since Brexit occurred, uh, we have been... Trying to retain or rejoin um, our place in the the Horizon program, but it's not looking so good. So uh, we do have a a plan B. Um, It's encouraging to know that there are transitional arrangements there and ongoing commitments to funding international collaborative research and innovation, because these things are incredibly uh, important, especially if we're looking to uh, develop and grow the economy. But uh, this this kind of hiatus has created a lot of uncertainty, and if we can't rejoin Horizon, which is looking uh, likely at this point, I'm imagine there'll be quite a loss of of infrastructure, so the formal infrastructure, which, you know, can be rebuilt, but uh, it will take time. But I was also really mindful of the informal infrastructure. Uh, And I know from, you know, way back that some of these uh, collaboration uh, relationships are are very long standing. And there's a lot of kind of informal um, relationships that sit below that. And uh, to disrupt them, I think will have a, a very disruptive effect. And they're not easy to replace.
0: James, where were where are we on the Kubler Ross grief cycle in relation to all of this?
3: I don't know what that is, Jim. But (laughs) is is that denial, anger, depression, bargaining? (laughs) Um, I (laughs) I don't know. I feel like we are going through it all at once. So if I recap where we are up to, if you remember back in summer 2022 you know, pre-Lysteros of the world, felt very different. Then-Science Minister George Freeman, and who we think is now Science Minister George Freeman, but again, we'll come on to that, said that it would be necessary for a transition period to commence in September 2022 if association to Horizon was not possible. He said at that point, we'd have to pick up the phone and say we're going to have to do something else. In a more recent select committee appearance, Nusgani, who was also the science minister, confirmed that association to Horizon remained remain a preferred option in a debate in the House of Commons, then-chancellor Kwesi Kwarteng said yep, yeah, the funding's still there, and that still exists. The problem is that we're now in November, and time for enacting a Plan B of some sort is getting ever shorter and shorter, because a lot of the funding extensions are going to run out, and in the meantime, we are leaking out funding, expertise, partnerships, etc. So what is now appearing is, I suppose, a dual track of work. There is the quest to to stay associated to Horizon, which government still says is their preferred option. I think it is incredibly unlikely until the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland is resolved. And as we learned on the blog today by Christopher Smith, who's the international champion at UKRI and chair of the Art and Humanities Research Council, there is a lot of work going on in the background to ensure university and business partnerships can succeed in any form of Plan B. So it's this dual track, but eventually you're going to have to go one way, and I think that Plan B seems more likely than not at this stage.
0: Sama. There was a poll yesterday that said only 30% of people in Britain these days think that uh, Brexit was a good idea. And, you know, from a freedom of speech point of view, you would surely want universities as the crucible of where debate happens to be, to be places where people can debate whether or not the decision that was made uh, to leave the European Union was a good idea. But if you go back to the stuff we were talking about earlier, like imagine if tomorrow morning your students' union uh, advertised, you know, was Brexit a good idea or not? Within five minutes, you'd have the mail going, having a pop, wouldn't you? Like, <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think, to be honest, I, I would like to believe that we are quite resilient to what the popular media or the current government will, might think of our sector or not. Uh, because lately, frankly speaking, the universities has been the back for the media as well as unfortunately the government uh, but we carry on doing what we are good at is exactly what you say this is the place where we debate we debate anything that we think we are free to debate and we respect each other's perspective kind of kind of going back to what Jenny was beautifully articulating at the first topic that you know we need to teach our students how to be resilient in the face of fierce opposition, be respectful for, to the opposition's point of view, and still carry on believing or solidifying their belief they might have, or sometimes might even change their view. So whether Brexit is a good one or not, given that we were literally talking about research funding and how this is going to be a major problem, we have high dependency at Surrey on Horizon Europe as, as well. I, I guess I don't think our community collectively, although I'm not a representative of the academy, I must say, uh That we are very happy with how it is playing out for our sector. Don't forget that higher education was a net beneficiary when we were part of Europe. So dare I say, it broke my heart in 2016. It still breaks my heart that we are not in Europe. And this is causing us an enormous amount of trouble in terms of pursuing high quality research.
5: Guess who's back? Back again. Barber's back. Tell a friend. Michael Barber, architect of the Office for Students Regulatory Framework, erstwhile reviewer of policing, Blair-era targets and trajectories guru, has got himself yet another job. This time, he'll be coordinating the delivery of the government's ramshackle bag of skills interventions. T-levels, HTQs, and the lifelong loan entitlement will see their impact maximized by the great man in the Dash for 2025 implementation. There is already a fair bit to do. The actual LLE senior responsible owner at DFE, the ever-impressive Anne Spinelli, already has her work cut out on everything from data standards to driving demand. Quite how another very public reporting line going to both Gillian Keegan and Jeremy Hunt in and Treasury will help her is as yet unclear. Treasury involvement may here indicate a government desire to control the cost of LLE and thus the student loan book. Despite adding new loans to lightly existing public man for higher education, projections of the government's capital annual managed expenditure, of which student loans are by far the largest component, shows a drop in spending between 2024-25 and 2025-26, the years after LLE supposedly goes live. Parts of this multi-year downward trend in capital spending will be explained by the growing future repayments of the loan principal. Brought about by cutting interest rates, dropping the salary threshold and adding 10 additional years to the repayment term will explain parts of this. But it also appears government are either expecting LLE take-up to replace demand for traditional three-year provision, something we've seen no indication of so far, or is factoring in some future constraint on student numbers, such as those consulted on earlier this year. Elsewhere in the statement, we saw no action on maintenance support for students. A ridiculous decision to count fee loans as household income again means that, to the Treasury, student poverty is pretty much invisible. Likewise, there was no action on the declining value of the unit of resource per student for universities. Departmental funding at a DfE level and across government is facing a real terms cut. There was, however, good news for research and development. Rumoured cuts did not happen and the spending review settlement still holds. We'll also see universities in disadvantaged areas playing a role in the rethought investment zones as a way of seeing local skills needs tackled. But thankfully there wasn't a lot for HE in a budget that overall exceeded expectations in the short term by loading cuts after the expected 2024 election while offering little to tackle immediate issues outside of schools and the NHS.
0: Now, finally this week, Advance HE has released its annual statistical reports on equality in higher education. James, what did
3: we learn? Quite a lot, Jim. So, Advance HE, as you say, has released its annual statistical reports on equality in higher education covering staff and student HESA data for the academic year 2020-21. Some of the notable findings include a rise in disability declarations in both groups, reaching 15.2% of students and 6% of staff, the degree awarding gap between white students and black, Asian and minority ethnic students receiving a first or 2-1, falling from 10.8% to 9.9% in a year, and 2020-2021 was the first year with more female than male postgraduates. The infographics in the report show the pipelines from undergraduate student to postgraduate to staff member to professor demonstrating the racial and gender disparities in progression to senior posts one more stat i'd like to point out is that if you look at the longitudinal data between 2010 to 2021 declared disabilities among students has grown from 3.2 percent to 6 percent in that time
0: mm, that's that's uh that's really quite significant isn't it jenny what stood out for you
2: uh, well, I, I think uh, how slow progress is in all these areas, but I, I was drawn very much to the uh, data about students and disabilities because that's something we've seen in our own surveys over the last 10 years of students and applicants, and particularly rises in um, mental health conditions and neurodiversity. So, I, I, I didn't drill into those figures, but they're, they're two areas which we, we know that diagnosis is better um, and that we can see those levels rising as well. Um, and we, we've also seen that there's a rise in the disclosure rates, but I, I would also say not everyone is disclosing. So, um, in our latest applicant survey, um, about 20 percent of neurodiverse students were not planning to disclose
1: I think i i, I also think that yeah there are some positive um, aspects but the positive aspects of the data that people are reporting more or there are some level of improvement in awarding gap but the progress is really slow um, and I think there is a lot more work to be done and as a matter of fact I sometimes feel really sad that all this debate about what that means what is inclusive education is it de- Colonizing is it, um, you know, critical race theory? Is it, um, you know, uh, making sure that everybody has a voice, and whether we are exercising freedom of speech? In this all this noise, sometimes we may lose sight how to really deliver an inclusive education. In fact, I can bet you one thing. If you ask a healthy sample of academic community within British Academy about what is inclusive education, what do you actually do in a classroom or an assessment to reduce this awarding gap, I don't think you will get a very promising answer. And that's the problem we need to solve. James, we have to be a bit careful on that awarding gap thing,
0: don't we? Because other analysis has shown that if everyone does better, it makes it look like the awarding gap on first plus plus two ones is narrowing when actually when you look at first the gap is widening <laughs> um so and, and you know that, that, that there's something in that isn't there where you know when when you do look at a lot of stats what you sometimes miss are some of the subtleties of what's going on you know kind of beneath the surface
3: yeah So, two things. On my earlier point about um, disabled student statistics, that was actually staff members whose um, disclosures increased. For disabled students, the disclosure level is even higher, where it has grown from 8% in 2010-11 to 15.2% in 2020-2021. So to correct that. um, On the awarding gaps, Jim, I think there's quite, there's a few interesting debates here. So you're right, is that statistics can show there are some closing gaps in some places, but we should always remember that degree boundaries are really broad. So I think the question we should be asking the sector is, is it an acceptable policy outcome that if you are closing awarding gaps by virtue of moving students a couple of percent of degree outcomes either way? And does that represent actual progress over time? So what I'd be really, really interested to see is if you looked at a collation of raw marks, how is that changing over time? And does it point to any wards of implicit bias? Does it point towards progress genuinely being made that is aside from any algorithmic or mathematical anomalies i think then you could start to get a really really interesting insight but saying that i think a level of progress whilst not quick enough should always be the front of our minds as to how it can be made faster better So that's all we've got time for this
0: week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, Acast or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Asama, Jenny, James, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky